Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday the 23rd of August with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. If uh, there was ever any doubt over whether Ireland had changed since 1979, the visit of Pope Francis uh, this weekend certainly puts uh, that to bed. 39 years ago, John Paul II said he loved the young people of Ireland. The young, the middle-aged and the old loved John Paul and the Roman Catholic Church. It's not that young people today don't love either the Pope or the Church or both. The difference is that in 1979, people did so without question. Francis arrives here on Saturday to a storm of controversy surrounding clerical child sexual abuse, the cover-up of that abuse, what defines the family and the role of women in the Church. Father Iggy O'Donovan, an Augustinian priest, joins us once again. And you were hoping that some of these questions would have been addressed by this stage last time we spoke. Since then, we've had a statement from the Vatican in regard to the grand jury report into abuse in Pennsylvania, and indeed the statement from Francis through a video message the other day telling us of his excitement in coming here again this weekend. Uh, But there continues to be an awful lot of questions for Francis to address. And I I suppose, to some degree, that's healthy. It is. And um, as you spoke there, Michael, something entered my mind. I remember as a child learning that I come across a famous Greek story of Hercules and his labours. And one of them was killing a monster called the Hydra, which had nine heads. And each time he cut off a head, another one appeared. And my goodness, I said, this whole area of controversy and uh, the scandals and so forth, breaking from America and Australia and elsewhere... It's almost like the Hydra that no matter how many fires you put out, another one seems to spring up somewhere. Hmm. So um, I know I was hoping that some of these might have been addressed. But if anything, um, not maybe Ireland, where things have reasonable progress has been made. I do believe that uh, our, um, say, our protection policies and safeguarding policies now in Ireland, not just for the church, but for nearly all organizations in this country, as anybody involved in sport or anything else could tell you, is now quite rigid and well in place and uh, infinitely better, in fact, in many countries. And I say that now without fear of contradiction, infinitely better than many other countries. So that um, progress has been made there. But nevertheless, uh, you mentioned 1979. My God, what what a contrast. What a contrast. And again, not just for Ireland, but uh, the whole world has moved on in many ways. And so many... Like I was just thinking there, 79, you still had the Cold War. If, who remembers Brezhnev and the Politburo and all of that stuff? And we were afraid of nuclear war any day type thing. So in some way, things have moved on in so many different ways. But my concern, of course, is the church and my own society. Mm. And um, there, there has been quite a, 
it, it has been revolutionary. Uh, I graduated from UCD in 1979, and uh, my God, um, I can one can hardly. The two worlds are such a contrast. The homogenous Catholic society that John Paul visited, the heroic reception he received. Uh, the, I know he had theatrical ability. Young people of Ireland, I love you, and, and we loved him, no mm. doubt about it. Uh, I was I was in Galway that yeah. day, but um, as was Eamon Casey. Well, indeed, well, yes, and a, a man not shy from the from the microphone. I remember him well that day. Yeah, not shy for uh, people uh, who uh, were doing wrong uh, to preach to. Uh, um, Michael Cleary's son uh, is asking the Pope to apologise to all of uh, the people of Ireland and not surprising too, given that he was born uh, to uh, the uh, cleric uh, who yeah. was fairly fond of preaching himself. He, he was, and in fact, quite rigid in his uh, moral stance. I do mm. remember that. But um, I, I have a certain sympathy for Francis coming this weekend because I, I don't know what he can do in this area. Because uh, he's here on a very brief visit. It's not even an official visit to Ireland. He's coming to attend a conference. Mm. It, this conference could be in Cardiff or Paris or anywhere else. It happens to be in Dublin. And uh, so that he's got sort of quite his comfort on international conference and his mind was fixed on that. Uh, suddenly he's caught up in this whole web. Look, this kind of, if you like, this cancer which has gotten into the body of the church in Ireland. In some ways, it's a massive surgical operation carried out without anaesthesia by a patient who thought he was in good health, if you want to compare 79 to now. Hmm. So it has been massive. And certainly for all our morale, and my own morale, my God, those times simply feel like giving up. That Where do we start again? Well, perhaps... You know, what street, street, street credibility do we have any more mm. in this area? Yeah, well, I mean, this is a, a global event and families uh, from uh, the world are, are meeting, or at least uh, what the church defines to be a, a family uh, are, are meeting uh, to celebrate what the church defines to mean a, a family. Uh, but uh, perhaps if the Pope was uh, to address uh, the issue of clerical child sexual abuse, uh, he could look at the organiser of uh, this uh, Congress Cardinal Kevin Farrell and ask him to clarify his position uh, because uh, he lived with Cardinal Theodore McCarrick for six years and didn't know that he was a, a paedophile and uh, apparently it was well known. He did and lived earlier with a guy called Maciel de Golado who had an even more colourful, more colourful in life, I can assure you, much mm. more colourful. And uh, well, if, if the man said he didn't know, we can only take his word, but he didn't know. Perhaps he has an extraordinary Six ability. Six years. To, to, he, mm. he has an extraordinary ability to manage to ignore uh, unpleasant facts or not see them. I don't know. But um, I suppose, like so much else, we have this enormous elephant in the room, which mm. so many of us ignored for so long. But uh, I, I, I have never met Kevin Farrell. My only time I crossed swords with him at all was some... I think maybe even on your own programme where I defended Mrs. McAleese That's right. after, after mm. he had banned her from speaking in the Vatican. Mm. And, um, because so, of uh, her support for gay marriage. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, and uh, she was probably, unlike 1979, where there was little or no lay input at all, in some ways we're, we're fortunate to have people like Mrs. McAleese because her criticism, I see it not as anti-church or anti-anything, mm. in fact, but the fact that she's so passionate and loves the church 
she's concerned for it. Hence, her many, many statements, like the majority of people say a little or nothing because they, they, they probably wouldn't be as passionate or as concerned as somebody like Mrs. McAleese is. Yeah. And we're so fortunate to have somebody like her in our ranks. Well, we're not, uh, according to the Vatican, or at least Cardinal Kevin Farrell, who was born in Dublin and banned Mrs. McAleese from speaking in the Vatican because Indeed, of her beliefs I, I, noticed, gay I noticed that even this morning, I noticed my own local TD in Tipperary, Matty McGrath, has launched a scathing attack on Mrs. McAleese. As yesterday did a um, Fine Gael, uh, official mm. who accused her, which I thought was a very cynical thing to say, that her only interest in... Uh, campaigning for her son, Justin. And, yeah. and mm-hmm. injustice, that mm-hmm. she's simply mm-hmm. trying to campaign for her son, who apparently is going for the doll. In Dunleary yes. I, th- mm-hmm. I thought that was a particularly cynical remark to pass. Because oh. she has a genuine, she has a genuine contribution to make. And simply that she should shut up simply because her son is interested in politics. I mean, I'm, I mean that's that would be censorship of the of the worse worse than the bishops ever imposed. Do you think uh, that uh, Pope Francis should explain why Cardinal Donald Whirl is not uh, attending and didn't uh, attend as was scheduled yesterday? Uh, I don't know if it's for the, uh, Francis. I think the, um, it would be better perhaps if the organisers of the conference in Dublin, Dermot Martin, who is chairing it, uh, should say that uh, unambiguously and clearly. Because uh, Francis, for example, I, I, on a human level, I have a certain sympathy for mm. him. He's in his 80s and has little or no English. Yeah, he but... Communicate. Uh, OK, but, okay. Uh, I, I mean, this has really got nothing to do with Dublin. This is to do with the church on a, a global scale, doesn't it? And because of uh, the report in Pennsylvania and the criticism of Cardinal Whirl, it's believed that he, he pulled out of appearing in, in Dublin, where reporters would be asking him... A, questions about how he failed to protect children. Sure, but, but, I, but I still think that, he, that the p- people who invited him to Dublin and informed the, those attending that he would be there, it's really more up to them, I think, Michael, to say why he's not there. OK, but if Cardinal Whirl, uh, Cardinal Farrell, Cardinal Malley uh, and um, Marig Diga uh, all have questions uh, and uh, had been scheduled uh, to participate in the yes. world meeting and I, of and I'm genuinely sorry. I'm, I'm genuinely sorry that Cardinal O'Malley is not coming. Now, it's not that he has been accused of anything himself. I believe something has, has arisen in his diocese. And uh, he says he wants to be on hand to handle that. Now, I think that's a little bit... I, I, I take that with a little pinch of salt, because while there is some crisis in his diocese, coming to Dublin for a single day or two would hardly distract him from what would be a long, drawn-out process in his diocese. Mm. So I think, simply, I I think probably he just didn't want to come or didn't want to face those questions. That's my reading of it. Yeah, but when the highest uh, people in the church, uh, the hierarchy of the church, are are not available to answer questions about child protection and uh, child sexual abuse and the cover-up of child sexual uh, abuse, what does it say about a church? Uh, And it highlights how there has never been one uh, bishop or archbishop or cardinal uh, in this country uh, who has faced a court for covering up child sexual abuse. No, and uh, I think some of your listeners, uh, Michael, might find might find it a little ironic that I'm the one on here trying to make some case for them. Because uh, interesting that maybe some of those bishops and those others, for whom I've never been a spear carrier, would come on and defend themselves. Hmm. Because... Uh, <laughs> 
certainly they never saw me as their spokesperson. Well, 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 no, oh, absolutely. But let's let, let's re- remind ourselves of uh, the defence uh, that Sean Brady put up, uh, because uh, people will remember in 1975 uh, the canonical trial or whatever way they put it when they brought two young children in to sure, tell yeah. them how they were terribly abused by Brendan Smith, a, a notorious paedophile priest, and they were told to, to swear a, an oath of silence, uh, and Sean Brady oversaw that. He was asked why he didn't bring it to the attention of the authorities, and his explanation was that he didn't have the authority to do it. Yeah, well, I suppose that word silence, which you use there, Michael, the Big week. I know I'm going back over old ground here now, but the modus operandi appeared to be that whatever you did or whoever it hurt, you defended or you protected the institution above and beyond all else. In other words, silence. In some of my own controversies, one of the penalties that was placed on me was to say nothing. And, uh, you know, it was to be done in silence. And uh, so, uh, ironically, in trying to avoid scandal, the cover-up data became the greater scandal. Because now that we've gotten over, and I think for the greater part, the, that, that cancer of child abuse, sexual child abuse, has been largely addressed now. But the big question at the moment actually is the cover-up. And uh, ironically, in avoiding scandal, we created, if you like, the mother of all scandals. And, but t- t- uh, really, these cardinals and bishops and others who were in charge... Uh, I find myself a little bit uncomfortable trying to make a case for them. Mm. But it was the world in which, it was the formation they got, it was the world in which they lived. And uh, really, when even sometimes, like some of my little interventions in the media and things Mm. like that, how often was I told that I was letting down the side, I was letting the cat out of the bag, I was giving away the game, so often. Mm. I was saying I'm giving away no game, I'm simply telling people the truth as I see it. Mm. (laughs) But, that's a sort of mis- loyalty is a is a great thing, but misplaced loyalty can be a terrible thing, and um, because um, you turn your ear to, uh, turn away your eye from injustice and so forth, and we did that, we are, and we are now paying that price. Then, of course, we also set the bar, and particularly in the area of sexual morality, we set the bar very high for other people, very very high indeed. We created a sense of worry and guilt so much in so many people's lives and uh, torture them in confession and whatnot. Okay. And and now we, we are paying the price for that as well. What about the other social issue questions that are being asked this weekend? Uh, one of them uh, summed up well on the front page of the Irish Independent, which uh, tells us that one in three families no longer fits into what the church would define to be a family. Absolutely, and um, the Irish people have if the Irish people have freely and openly expressed their views on this in referenda in a way that few peoples have. And uh, I, I suppose you're talking if we talk about the marriage equality mm. uh, referendum, and especially that particular one. And uh, now I would defend and the right of any religious group, be they Christian or Muslim, to have their own definition of what is a family, mm. and they're welcome to that and hold on to that. And if, you, if I'm a good Catholic and I want to keep the Catholic family intact, well and good, I should do that. But have to face the reality that there are others with an alternative view who see it not just as a religious right, but as a human right, quite apart from religion, as a matter of civil rights. Uh, and uh, I, I, face it, I admit that 
maybe three quarters of the families in our country today would be the old, the traditional conventional family. But 25%, that's very, very high. Mm. Now, it will, bring, it will bring with it problems. It will bring with it other things. But but why should the church uh, recognise the right to be evil or intrinsically evil, as is described homosexuality? Yeah, that's, I think that is unfortunate language uh, in that, OK, we're dealing here. I don't want to confuse anybody. OK, we're using philosophical terms. And uh, so that when you talk about intrinsic evil, which is a literal translation from the Latin, but in modern English, in modern English, the word intrinsic evil or disordered carries with it, if you like, the connotation of perversity or something along that line. Mm-hmm. I hope my listeners see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that that type of language, and you might say, look, that's the way Aristotle or somebody, St. Augustine or somebody phrased it whenever. And, uh, but in the modern expression, in modern English, well, times have moved on to use the term to a person, I think you're intrinsically disordered or intrinsically evil activity or whatever. The, the, the very term is pejorative. The very term, uh, it actually, it, it damages your case because it, it, it can give the impression that we're quite off the wall coming up with terms like that. Apart mm. from the fact that people, people and genuinely good people, and I have listened carefully to Mrs. McAdee's on well, this one. Is Satan intrinsically evil? Is what? Satan intrinsically evil. The, the, the brief answer to that would be yes. Yes. But, but where you're talking about um, evil, as, the, the, look, the term good and evil goes back even to the very beginning of Scripture. Mm. Mm. The very, very beginning, the term good but and evil. If the, we're talking about, but when we come down to concrete situations in life, each, each thing has to be taken on its own terms. Mm. I think most people would accept that they say the activities of the Holocaust were evil. Okay. Whatever way one's okay. looking at. All right. That the child abuse scandal was evil. evil. Whatever okay. way one's looking at. Okay. But all the concrete situations. But if the view of the church is that homosex- homosexuality or the sexual act uh, between two people of the same gender is intrinsically evil, uh, well then why should it recognise the right to that or recognise people who do that as a family? It, no, I think we as Catholics, and I consider myself one of them now, and I'm, I'm part of the setup, so I'm not criticizing anybody else. What I will argue is that I can defend the, the Catholic family, which is the heterosexual married couple and their children, if they, if they do have a family, uh, in the, in the, if that is the traditional Catholic family. But where we are called upon, and I think most people would have mm. little problem with this, is recognise that there are others who are not of that view. Mm, that seems uh, to be making a case for the Holocaust. No, it's not making a case. Do, do you understand what I mean? I mean, you know, you're at odds with yourself. No, but, but uh, I, I, I couldn't possibly... I know, I, 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 whatever I'm accused of, I've never made a case for the Holocaust. <laughs> well, but, um, I, well what, what I mean is that... Uh, if on one hand uh, it's okay to describe something as evil uh, and on the other hand if church teaching describes something else as evil to say well we have to recognise that as a human right uh, well the, the two don't meet the two positions don't no, meet but, but I think I think Michael we're talking about two quite 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 different uh, contexts one of them uh, the, the, 
I think that when we're dealing with everyday human moral situations, to simply categorize one as evil and the other as intrinsically good, I think it's too broad a generality. For example, I would find myself at odds with that type of church language. I do, Mm. because I have dealt with families, with uh, same-sex couples and and their families, and uh, many of them in indeed very loving relationships. I was one of those who voted for that change in our ref- in our constitution, some in the referendum, the marriage equality, mm. a few years ago. And, and, it was, so and, and, and it was suggested to you by one of your bosses to go to confession. Indeed, yes. Okay. And what about all of the nuns in uh, this country? Uh, many of them uh, very good people, very happy uh, in the role that they have in the church. Looking forward to, to the visit of uh, the Pope, and uh, I imagine some of them would be. Uh, a, a little bit insulted, if not surprised, to think uh, that people uh, think that they don't have a, a role that's uh, worthwhile talking about because it should be better. Yeah, who are you speaking about now, Michael? The, well, the, the the nuns of this country. Oh yeah, well they're rapid, I'm afraid, like ourselves, a rapidly um, declining um, profession, shall we say. Uh, in this country. No, no, they, they, while they, I know that in the area of education and health, and God not least up in Drogheda, they're the medical missioners over the years in many ways. But many, many, many people are suggesting that their role is not as important as that of priests. Well, if you talk about the sacramental level and ministry in the church, uh, yes, they, they, they are, they are by, by their very gender, they are excluded. That is true. And uh, nobody, can, nobody can argue mm. with that. And, and men can't become nuns. Well, no, that, that, well, that is true, but we're talking there now, but by, by, by definition, they can't because um, nuns are female. But, uh, and by definition, priests are male. The, yeah, but uh, the, 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 the difference is that the, there is a very, very rigid rule has been made that only males can become priests. And only um, females can become nuns. Yes, but the, the difference is one has a particular sacramental standing in the hierarchy of the church. The other, if you like, is a functionary. Mm. They, they have they have no standing in the hierarchy of the church or in the governance of the church. That is the and uh, administration of the sacraments and things like that. So there's an intrinsic difference between the two. A huge difference between the two. And they should be allowed to become priests. Obviously, is your view? Well, I mm. have I have no problem with. Uh, I'm going to say none. Mm. Any lay person who wishes to, and uh, uh, because. Uh, it, invariably when we look for volunteers in the church to this, that or the other, it's one of the more interesting things that the majority of volunteers are invariably females. Somebody could do a very fine doctorate and some sociologist mm. and why that is so, that the people who react best and volunteer from most will be the uh, female members, even though the very, very select leadership are invariably male. But that is the way it has been. Now, the fact that the way that is the way it has been doesn't mean it's always to remain that way. And uh, as we go down the road, and given our present state of decrepitude, so many of us, uh, some radical steps would have to be taken. And what, whether it be women priests or whatever form it takes, but certainly what it will have to involve is the lay members of the church who make up the vast, the vast part of it, uh, rather than a small group like myself who happen to be in positions of leadership. Mm. Well, uh, undoubtedly, uh, people are looking at uh, the church in Ireland today and comparing it to, to 1979 and wondering what it'll be like in 40 years from now. Oh, we well, I, I think yeah, mm-hmm. 79, 
um, I remember at the time the bishop seeing it as a, a new beginning. Hmm. Very few saw it as the beginning of the end. When I say the beginning, the, the end as it was then. And uh, there's no reason why that model, out of which we lived for so long, and which wasn't that old, incidentally. Mm-hmm. The model mm-hmm. in Ireland was only about 150 years old or less. And, um, but um, on a more positive note, I suppose, Michael, uh, I look forward greatly to seeing Francis now the weekend. I hope to go to Croke Park, and I'm told I'm, I'm doing a little bit of media stuff at Knock. Mm-hmm. But uh, I hope to go to the concert in Croke Park, and I look forward to that and see okay. them. Hope that people enjoy them because and I'm sure a huge be... number of people are going along to enjoy themselves. And I wouldn't like that mm-hmm. our whole chat sort of comes across as exactly, negative. Yeah. And... Yeah. and I'm sure many hundreds of thousands will join you, and I'm sure will. Uh, people will and be delighted to and enjoy it. I think mm-hmm. it would be cherished of me not to be able to say as well. I was in Dohada last weekend, and uh, people who organised the FLA, FLA Kiolna Hern, it was the best one I have ever attended. And it was a credit to the town. It was fantastic. Okay. I've never seen Father like it. All right. The voice of experience by the sounds of it as well. Thank you indeed uh, for joining okay. us uh, this okay. morning. Father Iggy O'Donovan. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. In 2005, uh, there was 8,617 pubs in uh, this country. That's an awful lot of pubs in reality, isn't it? Uh, today, there's still a lot of pubs, 7,140 pubs in uh, the country. But that's a, a 17.1% decrease on uh, the amount uh, that there were 12 years ago. And uh, the Vintners Association has been responding to these figures from the drinks industry group of Ireland suggesting that it's because of excise duty placed on drugs and I've been speaking with Porik Cribben who's the chief executive officer of the VFI about the reasons why there's almost 1500 fewer pubs in the country. Yeah it's a very significant number I suppose it needs to be put uh, in slight context Um, the vast majority of those pubs closed between 2005 and 2011 and what we've seen since 2011 is pretty much a levelling off of that level of closure. And I suppose that's down to, um, well, the, the closures themselves, I suppose, are down to a number of things. Number one, uh, the economic recession. Uh, number two, uh, changes in lifestyle where we now see a lot more alcohol consumed at home uh, than uh, in, in, in what's generally termed the, the, the on-trade. And certainly it hasn't been helped by regulatory intervention, particularly in the area of um, high excise levels, which are now, we're now the second highest in Europe. Uh, but it's not just so much that we're the second highest, it's the level that we're ahead of everybody else. For example, uh, a pint of uh, um, beer here will attract 10 times uh, the amount of excise that attracts in, say, Germany or, or Spain, bottle of wine here, no, no excise on, on, on um, wine in, in Portugal or, or Spain. And ironically, if you wanted to buy a bottle of Irish whiskey, you'll buy it a lot cheaper in Spain uh, than you'll buy it in Ireland, and simply down to uh, the, the, the excise regime that we're working on. OK, and I suppose people are wondering why that is uh, the case in bringing home Irish whiskey from these countries when they're coming back from their holidays. Yes, indeed. And uh, there's a very famous incident where a, a particularly prominent minister some, some many years ago rang our office when they got back to know why could uh, uh, this particular minister buy uh, Irish whiskey uh, so much more cheaply uh, abroad than she could at home. And when she was told why, she said that couldn't be. And when she went and checked the facts, found that uh, it actually was um, very true. 
Right. What about the smoking ban? Uh, has that been a, a factor in these closures? I think there are a number of things. You know, you have the smoking ban has, has, has been a, a factor to a certain extent. Uh, because what, that, what happened at that stage was it actually put a lot of people uh, who were smokers off going to the pub. But, you know, I, I think we've, we've um, well, I won't say we've got over that. Uh, I think society generally has moved on from that. Hmm. Uh, moved on since 2011, but we're looking at statistics that go back to 2005, are we not? That, that's correct. And yeah. the ban was introduced, as I remember, in 2004. That's that's absolutely correct. Yeah, and that that had at that point in time a very significant uh, um, um, uh, played played a, played a big part in the game, I suppose. Really, the other thing is that it played a big uh, part in the game of people drinking at home, perhaps. Correct. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, you know, it it it, um, it did force people who were used to smoking, and a lot of people even who were. Uh, casual smokers might only smoke when they were having a drink yeah. and found that uh, it just wasn't possible. And, and uh, probably all right in this weather or the weather that we've had this year, if somebody has a cigarette or a couple of cigarettes once a week when they go out for a, a drink, uh, fine to be sitting out in a beer garden on a fine summer's evening, uh, but uh, if we think of the very bad weather that we're all very used to in this country, uh, you don't want to be standing, waiting on a, a bus, let alone trying to socialise. That's correct. I mean, we get uh, 2018 weather once every 30, 40 years. Um, and I, I think some of the legislators think that we get that all of the time. And even today, um, it remains an issue, not so much that people, that publicans want smoking inside, mm. but the regime that some of the um, uh, police, uh, the, the smoking police, as I tend to call them, the regime that they want to put in place, uh, it's, you know, I think there's a spirit of the law that needs to be uh, adhered to, and that is being adhered to. But when you know, when you have these people taking out measuring tapes to see is this forty-eight percent or fifty percent, then I think we're gone just a step too far. All right, well, I take it it's the HSE inspectors uh, that you're talking about when you're talking that about is the correct, yes. smoking that is police. Correct. But there's also the yeah. road traffic police as well, uh, and drink driving legislation, and uh, the reduction in the limits over recent years. Yeah, that has. There is no doubt that in rural areas, uh, that has that, that that plays a part uh, and a very significant part. But you know, at the end of the day, uh, the law is the law. Whether we agree with the law or we disagree with the law, it's the law, and uh, it has played a very significant part in uh, moving people out of pubs and into the home. And I think it's important to note also mm. that in the context, in that particular context, that if you listen to the medical experts. This is not uh, the publicans. If you listen to the medical experts, if you listen to Professor Frank Murray, if you, if uh, um, you know, and 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 his cohorts, they will say that people are significantly better drinking in pubs than drinking at home, because at home there are no measures, there are nobody, there's nobody yeah. to tell somebody they've had enough, and they're seeing the effects of what has happened in the last 15 years in their clinics, in their hospitals mm. with... with uh, oh, and with, there's no with, doubt about it. I, I mean, you take a, a glass of wine, for example, it's measured in a, a pub, you give somebody a glass of wine at home, it could be the equivalent of a half a pint or a pint of wine uh, because uh, you're not measuring it as such. So I think there's lots of experts who agree with that point of view, uh, but there's probably twice as many experts who would uh, suggest uh, that you should not drink and drive and it's better not to drink at all. That 
than drive and perhaps it's responsible behaviour that's led to the closure of these pubs because people aren't going to them and no coincidence if that's the case uh, that it's in the likes of Dublin where there's been very few closures or in Mead uh, where there's large urban centres where there's just been three pubs that have closed down. Well, I mean, you could take uh, that is uh, that's absolutely true, uh, and and there there are the facilities in in Dublin, but I think that uh, that would be a very simplistic uh, analysis of what has happened. I mean, in Dublin, but it's not necessarily seen, wrong, is it? I mean, sometimes life is simple. Well, no, I think you have got to look at the whole uh, economic climate as well. I think number one, the recession didn't hit as badly in Dublin as elsewhere, and number two, if it did, uh, the rebound came a lot earlier. So, I mean, there, there's a whole combination of factors, including disposable income, including, I mean, if you, if you were to do a consumer confidence survey in Dublin, uh, it, it'd probably be very different if you did it in the west of Ireland. Mm. If you listen to all of the economic um, uh, commentators, the, the, the recession and the recovery from the recession has, has hit Dublin way earlier than, any, than anywhere else. And for Dublin, you can read that. You can, yeah. you can read that whole Eastern I know, region, but we had too many in pubs in this country, there. didn't we? I mean, we had far too many pubs in this country and pubs in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and the only way that you could get to them was by driving. You'd want to be a, a multi-millionaire to afford the taxis if you were to go to these places regularly. Uh, so you either uh, had a drink and drove home or you got a, a taxi and neither are possible really in the world that we live in today. I think your your analysis that we were over pubs is correct. Uh, I think there's, I, I don't think anybody, I certainly wouldn't argue with that. Uh, and in, as in most, as in most instances, uh, the market does find its own level. But I, I also think, you know, if you look at what happened since uh, 2011, and it's no coincidence that the introduction of the 9% VAT for the hospitality sector, where a lot of pubs got into food, uh, and uh, some got into accommodation. That actually has been a significant positive factor. Uh, and now we hear a lot of noise about, you know, this, this needs to be done away with. You tell that to the people uh, who are running small businesses who are on tight margins, particularly in rural Ireland, uh, and they will give you your answer that that has been a lifeline for them and continues to be a lifeline. And it's very important that that be retained in the budget. But do you wish to associate yourself with the big hotels uh, who are charging exorbitant prices uh, and availing of uh, the same support from the state? Well, I don't look after hotels. I don't no. have input in hotels. But I, I, I take the point uh, that you make. And, uh, I mean, that's a matter for the minister uh, um, to, to address, but you know, you talk to the hotels in 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 in, in the Longfords, in the Roscommons, mm. in the Tullamores, in the Port Leaches, and uh, I know many of those hotels, and I can assure you that uh, they have the same challenges as a lot of other uh, businesses in those areas. They're fighting to stay alive. All right. Uh, I suppose uh, one of uh, the other problems is uh, the cost of alcohol in pubs compared to drinking at home. Uh, And uh, this is possibly as a a result of uh, the change of culture because of drink driving and smoking that people started drinking at home and then they realised, God, it's an awful lot more cheaper. Of course it's cheaper because you're you're not comparing apples. Well, there's two reasons. You're not comparing apples with apples, number one. Uh, the, the, the first thing I would say on that is that the cheap alcohol that you, you are buying in supermarkets, and it is very cheap, and mm-hmm. it is way cheaper than you get in a pub. But, and, and this goes back to a certain extent to the, 
uh, excise regime where it's the same excise whether you buy it in a pub or whether you buy it in a, in a, in a, in a supermarket. But the supermarkets absorb that. But, you know, that's often uh, indicated as being consumer-friendly. It's quite the opposite because what they actually do, supermarkets are not known for, uh, you know, for thin margins. And what they actually do is they increase the price of other more staple products, whether it's bread, whether it's milk, whether yep. it's nappies, whether mm. it's biscuits or whatever. Yep. And they recoup their losses that yep. way. A pub cannot do that mm. because they only have the one product. And you so. could make that point for the rest of this interview. Uh, and people will say, well, sure, that doesn't bother me. Absolutely. And, I, and, that's, and that's, uh, that's absolutely understood. Uh, but they are the realities of life. Mm. Uh, but there's also the other realities of life uh, in terms of what the pubs are charging. And some people, as you know, will say, well, they've only themselves to blame. So look what they've been charging for minerals for years. Well, it's very simple. If you go back to just just go back to the humble pint for a minute. Right. Mm. And it's a very it's a very simple equation. A third of the humble pint goes to the government in tax. A third of the humble, uh, the cost of the humble pint goes to the supplier, the manufacturer, the distributor, and a third is left for the publican. That's in very simple terms. Now, out of that third, that publican has to pay for his insurance, his rates, his water rates. By the way, he pays for water mm. as well, both in and out. So, so, uh, so, as forced to make his money off soft drinks, is it? No, I'm saying that what you have is that is the justification. Because the question I asked you was about soft drinks. Yeah, but what what every what every publican offers is a balance, uh, and, and in order to balance the, your trade, uh, you're ripping people off on soft drinks to make up for the taxes that the government are putting on alcohol. Is it? You, you, what 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 you're doing, and I think a lot of a lot of people say, "Fine, I can buy a soft drink here for that, mm-hmm. and the other." But what the what, what I'm doing, in fairness, is putting to you what people have been saying for decades. Absolutely, and and but the, the reality is this: that the, the cost structure to run a business requires that certain charges are imposed on those who want to use that that uh, that business. And whether it's whether you're paying for Sky TV at eleven hundred euros a month, if you take in your your your, your mm. all your cable television, mm. uh, they, those costs have to be recouped. Now, okay, you can actually put up the price of the pint and uh, drop the price of the soft drinks and you'll have other people giving out it's about it's about balance and that is uh, the president of uh, the VFI Porrick Cribben speaking to me before we came on air today Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM now let's find out what you've been saying to us Maggie McGuire joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages uh, that have been coming to us this morning good morning to you Maggie good morning Michael how you doing grand um, well actually going back to your headlines mm. I have a comment in from Teresa that's very much in, um, along the same lines of the comments been made by independent TD Maggie McGuire right um, Teresa is saying that she's very surprised at Mary McAleese's behaviour she claims that she's a member of the Catholic Church i.e. Mary claims mm. she's a member of the Catholic Church but she's condemning the Pope and the Church at every possible opportunity uh, Teresa says she must be missing all the strappings and publicity that went along with the gig when she was president <laughs> all she's looking for is special attention OK, right, uh, interesting <laughs> indeed uh, to hear the comments of Matty McGrath as well, uh, people taking exception to what's being said. Oh absolutely and we have Claire from Dundalk on the phone line um, this morning she was saying she wishes people would stop um, giving out about the Holy Father's visit to Ireland um, she thinks it's great we should embrace him he's a Pope for the people and the Chief of One is really looking forward to his arrival OK and I, I think uh, 
thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps more, really looking forward to his arrival. And uh, I think there's an awful lot of people who would see it as a, a great occasion, great opportunity for the country and a great reason for celebration. Uh, but uh, I don't think anybody has been objecting to the Pope coming here. I think uh, the people that have uh, been giving out, if you like, have been asking questions uh, about uh, the church, uh, its uh, attitude uh, towards uh, child sexual abuse and other social issues, uh, and indeed uh, looking for answers from the hierarchy uh, and as the head of the church, the Pope in relation to the policy and the position that it's taken on some very serious issues. Oh, that's it. And a lot of people feel that he's kind of unfairly getting targeted by people and it's kind of for the sins of others I suppose is what, what people are saying mm. like um, in his organisation in his organisation yeah. absolutely yeah. but yeah. Um, you know Nessa was making the point that she feels that the Pope can do nothing nothing right in the eyes of some people in, in this country and will be condemned no matter what he does um, he, she was saying that they've called for an apology he's issued one no no, I don't think people did call for an apology. I think actually it was very clear because there's been so many apologies over the years that there's no point in apologising. <laughs> Do something. Yeah. Take well, action. Action well, speaks louder than words. This is it. But the point she was making was that he did issue an apology mm. and people still weren't happy. Um, you know, it was a, he was asked to meet with victims. He's going to meet with victims. Yet that still doesn't go far enough for some. It's constantly being said that he needs to listen to the people and be led by them on this. Well, Nessa believes that this is exactly what he's doing. He's listening to their suggestions. So why are they still castigating him? She thinks that we should give him a chance to bring about um, change and that it's unfair to bash him at every opportunity. Okay. So that's her, her point. And uh, Margaret says that while she's looking forward to the Pope coming here at the weekend, at the same time she can't wait for the whole thing to be over mm. because she's exhausted listening to <laughs> the constant bickering and arguing mm. that this trip has generated. It's all over the media. The mm. papers are giving pages and pages to it and TV and radio shows are talking about it non-stop and it's all just getting a bit much now. Mm. Um, she says she's not trying to be disrespectful to anybody in what mm-hmm. she's saying. Mm. She's just making the point that she personally will be glad when it's over and the yeah. country can go back to normal. Well, uh, I think I know where she's coming from and uh, I think I understand why uh, because it is a predominantly Roman Catholic country uh, and perhaps it's true that uh, most people in this country don't uh, profess their religion anymore but uh, back in 1979 I I think uh, that was a statement that could have been made uncontested today Uh, whilst most people may not profess their religion uh, I think uh, the latest uh, CSO data would put about 80% of the people saying that they were Roman Catholics in and around that anyway you know so we've all grown up with it we Mm. all have uh, an interest in it to say the very least we all have an opinion on it you know exactly Um, and it's all had an influence on all of us oh absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely Um, Anita and Dundalk was saying that the church is in crisis and it cannot walk away from the abuse that's systematic in its ranks she's saying she's not lost her faith throughout all of this but she cannot and will not let them look away and say nothing or cover up what's happened the church has to be held accountable Um, she says she's upset that our church is upset discriminated against, abused and roundly let down the faith of its people. We cannot stand by and say nothing. When so many people's lives have been destroyed, we have to call for accountability. All right. Well, there are other things to talk about and let's talk about one of them now because uh, the post office in Carner Ross is to close down. Maria Murphy of uh, the Save Carner Ross Post Office Committee joins us once again. And thanks for coming back to us, Maria. You have a, an update, do you? I do indeed, Mark. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. 
To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Thank you very much. Michael, on Monday, our local postmaster, uh, well, first of all, following, we had a public meeting last Thursday night where we had a large number of the community um, involved. We had people from as far away as post offices in Cavan and Killishan, but in and different places who feel they might be affected too. We had a number of councillors and TDs in attendance. And following this, in all our representations to Unpost and to the, the Minister's office, we have had negotiations, or the local postmaster has had negotiations with Unpost, and we got verbal confirmation on Monday afternoon that Carnaross Post Office are now off the closure list. Okay, so when I said Karen Ross Post Office is closing down, I should have said Karen Ross Post Office is not closing down in actual fact. Well, this is what we've been told. Now, naturally, we're delighted with the news, but we're still a little bit apprehensive until we get confirmation in writing. So we're still going ahead with our public meeting next Thursday night. And hopefully by that stage, we will have confirmation in writing. In the background at the moment, we're still progressing with our appeal process in case there's an 11-hour turnaround and we might still need to, you know, appeal this um, within the recognised time frame. But we are hopeful. We, we do believe that Unpost wouldn't have given that verbal confirmation to our postmaster if they weren't planning on going ahead with it. OK, I'm sure people are very pleased. They are thrilled in the community, yes. Good for you. Thanks for joining us. Maria Murphy of uh, the Save Carnaross Ross Post Office Committee. Now back uh, to some more of the comments, Maggie. And we're going back to the Pope again. Um, oh. uh, Jane on the line saying she likes this Pope. Um, she thinks he's shaking things up a bit in the church. She had the guts to come out and apologise, first of all. And we can't blame him for the sins of his predecessors. Um, again we had Jack on the phone he was saying that he just thinks that it's a case of bad timing when it comes to the Pope's um, visit he says um, many people in Ireland have suffered for years at the hands of the church women and children affected the most and many of those people are still suffering from the effects of the abuse they experienced and he says that the Pope's visit is just like ripping these wounds open again mm, for some people yeah, yeah, yeah. well there are open wounds uh, that need healing absolutely and Denise um, believes that it would make much more of an impact if the Pope visited Tume she thinks it would be a really powerful message to send to the people of Ireland it would be a real turning point and she thinks that people could start to rebuild again if that was to happen mm, and there'll be a protest in Tume it's a uh, one of uh, many protests yeah. uh, there will be an LGBT choir I think uh, in making Dublin, a yeah. protest and uh, Colin McGorman's protest of course as Absolutely, well at yeah. the Garden of Remembrance yeah. and um, it's actually the last uh, mm. comment on the Pope I have other ones to come to yet but um, James McLean saying he doesn't understand what all the fuss is about the, uh, the Pope's visit it's just a man after all and that he's looking forward to when the whole thing is over Okay well I'm sure uh, many residents in uh, the general vicinity <laughs> of the up, Phoenix yeah. Park uh, will be looking forward to when it's over as well, it seems as though uh, it's going to be a lock-in for many people. I think so, yeah. Um, and moving on to pub closures, actually, we had Eric from Dundalk on to us. He says that it was the introduction of the smoking ban that sounded um, the death bell for many pubs, in his opinion. A lot of them couldn't survive once they, that come in. Yeah, well, I mean, there was a, a lot of things as I was discussing with Pollock. I think that there certainly was an effect on business there, yeah. and uh, people, especially on the cold and wet days and windy days, decided that it wasn't worth going down to the pub because you'd be standing outside catching your death of cold. Absolutely. Uh, so they stayed at home and uh, bought from the off-licence and then... They got used to doing that. Well, they realised it, it was a lot cheaper, cheaper as well, yeah. yeah. And they could have their friends around and do whatever they wanted. And yeah. 
not have to worry about anything else. So, so it became the new norm, really, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, in a lot of ways, yeah. And today, my pub closures as well. Johnny was saying he's not surprised to hear that huge numbers of pubs have closed down um, in recent years, given mm. the extortionate prices they were charging for drink, mm. which is going along with what you were saying. He said, sure, nobody could afford some of the uh, some of the prices. In some places, 50 euro would barely cover a round of drinks for two people. Um, it's no wonder that customers have their, uh, decided to have their drinks at home instead and only go out for special occasions. Mm. Publicans priced themselves out of business. Yeah, but even, even at that, I mean, as Paul Cribbon himself said, there were too many pubs in the country. There was a pub on every crossroads in the country up to 2005, obviously, and that uh, probably coincided with the real clampdown on drink yeah. driving. Well, I mean, I, I live in Cartmacross and Monaghan, mm. and there's one main street in my hometown, and I think there's 20-something pubs on the mm. on the one main street so yeah, you know yeah, every yeah. second shop really yeah. or every second premises is a pub so mm, yeah you can you yeah. can see that there was too many you know um, and then just moving on to the pensions issue actually because you teed that up at the start of the programme so we had a couple of comments in in relation to that um, Jim from Mead is really um, welcoming the proposals he says it's about time the government started to do something for hard working people and he feels that many young workers will benefit from that well, they may not agree. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, Kevin actually is not is in disagreement yeah. with it. Actually, he's saying what oh. about the workers who have a pension plan already in place? Now we have to pay into something else. He thinks it's ridiculous, and he says it can't be forced on people. Yeah, I'm not sure that that is uh, the case. I don't think uh, you'll be forced into an additional plan, but. Okay. Uh, Time will tell, I'm sure. Well, I'm just conscious mm. of the time here, so I'll finish up on this one. Um, we had Rebecca as well on about pensions, and she thinks that the uh, mandatory pension is a good idea. She's been um, in work for full time in full time employment now for ten years, and at present her um, employer doesn't have a pension scheme. She says if she knew she only had to put in small amounts, and that the government would be contributing contributing to it as well mm. it would be a real comfort to her because then she knew she would know she had something put by for her future and that her hard work would pay off eventually yeah okay well you know it's uh, something that we'll be talking about i think for the next few years and one of uh, the criticisms of this plan at the moment seems to be that it won't be implemented for four years and yes, 2022, uh, yeah, isn't it? yeah but as you said uh, we'll be talking about that in a little, a little while. while. All right, thanks for that, Maggie. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. You can ring us on 1850 uh, Maggie taking calls on that number now, and uh, she'd be delighted to hear from you. As I say, 1850 our telephone number, or you can text us on 086 1800 658. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Fianna Fáil, as uh, you've been hearing, is talking uh, about uh, some sort of uh, an alliance with uh, the SDLP in uh, the North, possibly even a merger, but is being described as hypocrites uh, by Sinn Féin. Michael Brennan, political editor with uh, the Sunday Business Post on the line. Michael, this follows uh, the interview with Thomas Byrne on uh, this programme yesterday and the question I was asking of him, if uh, they were to merge or come to some agreement with the SDLP, would they stand candidates for Westminster? Yes, that's right. And, and I think it's uh, it's really interesting, Michael, that you're one of the few to get any public utterances on this uh, controversial idea because both parties have been staying officially very quiet and saying uh, little or nothing about it. I think I can see why Sinn Féin want to attack Fianna Fáil and, and use the oath of allegiance as a way to do it. But I think if you did have a merger, there would be no difficulty in in, uh, in a, a, a Fianna Fáil SDLP merged or takeover organisation running candidates because the SDLP already do that. And I, I think Fianna Fáil would have no great objection 
given that they're publicly calling on, on Sinn Féin to take up their seats in Westminster as it is. Mm. Uh, but how would that go down with Fianna Fáil grassroots supporters? I, I think if you, if you proposed it 20 or 30 years ago, particularly 20 years ago before the Good Friday Agreement was signed, it would have been a more difficult ask. But you must remember, obviously, since then, we've had the Queen coming to visit and getting a very good reception. Um, there is a, a peace in the north of, of a sort, uh, although no power sharing. And I think attitudes have changed so much that I think they, 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 there isn't the same difficulty. In fact, I'd say if you look to the viewer figures, one of the most popular series in, in Ireland as a whole in recent times has been The Crown on Netflix, which mm, is people fantastic. watching yeah. hours mm. of, of the British Queen. Yeah. So, so things have changed. Yeah. And put, 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 put Elizabeth in a different light, I think, for many people for that matter. But having said that, uh, if Fianna Fáil uh, in some form of cooperation with the SDLP was uh, to see candidates run for and take seats in Westminster and subsequently uh, make an oath of allegiance to the Queen of England. That would be wonderful ammunition, would it not be, for Sinn Féin, the party who wants a united Ireland, who would describe Fianna Fáil as a party who sees the North as a province of the United Kingdom. Yeah, I, I think they, they, it certainly it certainly could play for them in some quarters, but I, I think, to be honest, it, it would put far, far more pressure on Sinn Féin because due to the, the strength they've had in, in recent years, they've been able to win seats in Westminster on a platform of abstentionism mm. where they're, they're declaring, we will not take this seat up. There would then be a, another choice for voters, as there is already with the Sinn Féin and the SDLP, but Fianna Fáil would give a, an extra dimension to it for people to say, well, here's another choice for you now to say you can have the abstentionist candidate or the one who's going to take up their seat. And historically, it would be an amazing completion of the circle where Fianna Fáil under Eamon de Valera wouldn't take um, the oath to the British crown when they were going to enter um, the, the Irish parliament, the Dáil. But under Eamon de Valera, they obviously changed that policy and described it as empty formula and, and were told to just pretend pretend they were thinking of something else as they signed. And, and Fianna Fáil entered you know, Irish politics and, and, and government. So you could have the, the completion of that process if you had uh, Fianna Fáil slash SDLP um, uh, new candidates going into Westminster. They could use that uh, famous uh, church thing of mental reservation. Yes, exactly. There's, <laughs> a, there's all kinds of colourful yeah. and worlds. One thing, worlds one, one thing using mental reservation, though, uh, for the Irish Parliament, but for the British Parliament, uh, and uh, making a, a, an oath of allegiance, taking an oath of allegiance uh, to the Crown, as you say, uh, surely that oath would have to be removed, would it not? I, that, 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 I suppose, it would be quite a, quite a big undertaking. And I think, you know, the DUP might have something to say about that mm. if, uh, if, if all of a sudden you were looking to, to change something that's been there for quite so long. But I think the, the, you know, the bigger issue for Fianna Fáil and SDLP, you know, to sort of look at where do they start off is, mm. is next May's local elections in the north. Mm. And, you know, to get any sort of agreement on a merger or running joint candidates, You'd have to bring it to, for example, the Fianna Fáil Ardesh. That'll be later this year. Um, they've been in the RDS for most recent years. The SDLP, again, would have to put it through their organisation. And I think that's probably the bigger battle for both parties to to get get agreement on uh, among their own troops uh, about just 
the first step, which is will be the local elections, and and then worry about uh, Westminster after that. Do you believe that that will become a, a reality? That there will be some sort of an arrangement. I think it's very difficult to say, and the, the reason being, Michael, this story of Fianna Fáil and the SDLP, you know, goes back, you know, so long. You know, in Bertie Ahern's time, it was the, the great vision, and there was, you know, sympathetic noises being made, but nothing ever came of it. I suppose the big thing since that is Brexit and the fact that you have, um, you know, the SDLP even in a weaker position than they were 10 or 12 years ago when this talk was, was around back then as well. So I think those two factors... You know that, that you know there is more talk of an all all island political system and parties looking at competing on an all island basis, and Fianna Fáil do need some new string to their bow at the moment because they're they're struggling to to find I suppose a new sense of mission and how they fit into the new way politics has changed and and you know going north in a serious way might might help I suppose bring some energy back to the party and and I suppose hark back maybe to its it's a it's sort of moniker as Fianna Fáil, the Republican Party. Mm, and to be seen as a, a, an all-Ireland Republican Party, uh, and uh, I suppose uh, that's uh, the light that a, a lot of the political parties in uh, this jurisdiction would like to be seen in. Uh, certainly the light uh, that Sinn Féin would like to be seen in. Sinn Féin would also like to be seen as a political party that supports a reform of policing here, given all of uh, the controversies that we've had of late. And it has... A, a real problem, doesn't it, with the incoming guard commissioner? And uh, it probably is disappointed uh, that the High Court hasn't allowed this case uh, that was to be taken by Kieran McCurt uh, against the appointment of uh, Drew Harris as uh, the next commissioner. Yeah, it's a tricky one for Sinn Féin. So far, they've they've sort of been on the fence in regard to the new incoming Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris. They've, you know, they have not come out and condemned his appointment and they've said they're going to work with him. But they are uneasy given the fact he was the Deputy Chief Constable in the PSNI and would have been involved in investigations that brought in um, members of their own party. And famously, uh, Gerry Adams, uh, you know, was quizzed before by the PSNI Mm. um, while Drew Harris was at a senior level there. So they are uncomfortable, but... At the same time, they have been very loud in their calls for gather reform, for a new broom, and so on. So at the moment, I think they're they're reserving judgment. But there's actually, I think, more concern among Gardaí and members of the the security establishment here about the appointment of Drew Harris. There's a lot of uncomfortable feeling about you know his his previous role in the PSNI and you know dealings he would have had with British intelligence. How is that going to play out when he will have a substantial role in the, the in national security here in 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 the south as well so mm. I, I think that's probably something you're going to see more of uh, and drew harris believes he knows who ordered the killing of tom oliver that might be of concern to some republicans uh, but uh, the fact that they wouldn't work with him on the policing board Katrina Ruan walked off the policing board in northern ireland because of him uh, was uh, Part of this ongoing thing, which saw the arrest of Jerry Adams uh, by order of Drew Harris uh, because uh, of uh, his suspected involvement in the disappearance of Jean McConville, that was described as political policing, sectarian policing, and Drew Harris uh, described as part of the dark forces of policing in the North. The theory is is that he has an agenda because the IRA killed his father uh, and. 
uh, he has been part of uh, policing in Northern Ireland uh, and as a member of the RUC uh, and a senior police officer there cannot come uh, to this in a balanced way that would be fair to all. Uh, that's true. And I think, you know, they, they, that certainly has been there as an issue for Sinn Féin. But the fact that Mary Lou MacDonald is their new president now instead of Jerry Adams in some way gives the party an opportunity to, to pull away a little bit from its previous stance that it will be Mary Lou MacDonald, who, who is the, the central figurehead for the party rather than Jerry Adams. And who knows, some of the issues you've described there may well uh, rear their head again. But I think the the big challenge for Drew Harris, he will not be as worried about where he stands with Sinn Féin. He will be worried with how he can somehow get the the, the backing of the 13,000 Gardaí that he's taking over. Because we saw even with the former commissioner, Noreen O'Sullivan, there were some at a senior level in her force, we're told, who were not enthusiastic about her regime. And she found it very difficult to do some things in the force in terms of reforms because she didn't have a united team with her. Now, it wasn't the, re- the re- main reason why she had to resign, but it made her job difficult. And I think Drew Harris, his main priority will be reaching out to all members of the force and trying to, at one hand, reform the force and at the same time reassure them that he's trying to bring them along with them. He'll have his work cut out for him by the sounds of things. Uh, Sinn Féin would like to see itself as the party of uh, the left, uh, but uh, the Labour Party would disagree. It seems as though the Labour Party has its work cut out for it. Indeed, its leader, Brendan Hallan, has his work cut out for him. He does, yeah. He's facing sort of, um, you know, insurrectionary noises in the party at the moment. Um, uh, uh, some councillors have come out, uh, you know, uh, uh, more than a dozen or so have signed a letter calling for the issue of the party leadership to be discussed at a special meeting. There's no sign of any imminent action there, but there will be a, a Labour Party thinking event in, in Drogheda next month. And he has said, Brendan Howland, that that is where he wants to discuss it. And councillors will have a, a, a chance to, to bring it up there at a special event. So it's in this, you know, grey zone at the moment where there's noises being made, but no no sign of any urgent action. And I suppose some of the councillors certainly are supporters of, of Alan Kelly, the former mm. Labour Party deputy leader. He wrote an article last weekend in one of the papers, you know, uh, calling for, for, you know, reform of Labour and for things to improve, which... Some would interpret as a sign that you know he is the the leading contender if if uh, if Brendan Howland is to be is to be pushed out. But so far, it's a sign we just have of Labour struggling very much two years after nearly getting wiped out in the general election to find a new purpose and garner back some of its previous support. And it it just looks like a long hard battle for the party whether Brendan Howland stays on as leader or whether you have a new one taking over. Okay, well, we continue on the road to a presidential uh, election as well, of course, uh, Michael. We've a a number of potential candidates in front of Meath County Council next week. Uh, We're going to have a a number of names on the ticket, it would seem. Yeah, that's right. Um, Certainly, at this stage, very clear we have a contest and we're we're still waiting as well for Sinn Féin in the middle of next month to unveil their candidate. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, people seeking seeking an independent nomination. We've had the journalist Gemma O'Doherty announced recently that she she's uh, joining that group 
You have people like Gavin Duffy, who a businessman who would have featured on Dragon's Den, and Senator Joan Freeman, who was helped to found Pieta House, the um, suicide prevention charity. So they're all competing uh, for the nomination. The only issue is there's only so many votes out there. You know, they need they need uh, to to get say 20 members of the Oireachtas TDs and senators, but you know, realistically there's only enough votes there to get one candidate. So it's a, then you have the council route, which, as you mentioned, they're mm. touring the, the country trying to get councils to back them. But it's, it's a bit uncertain at the moment who will make it through. But the, the, the simple reality is we're, we're going to have, I think, at least three candidates in this election. You know, President mm. Hickens looking for a second term, the Sinn Féin candidate, and then one of, you know, someone from the independent stable. Uh, at a minimum. Uh, and it's still unclear as to who might be looking for a, a nomination. Uh, there's still speculation uh, about Sean Gallagher. That's right. You know, he's, um, he's you know, been dropping lots of hints and calling for the, for the cost of the election to be reduced by having all the election literature in one envelope instead of multiple envelopes, which, you know, was a good idea when he proposed it the last time as well. Um, so, so yeah, he he has been quite uh, enigmatic about his intentions, you know. But given that there's a lot of candidates going for late launches in this campaign, he still has time. I think they learned from 2011 when people came out early and had their past forensically scrutinised by the media for the whole uh, silly season of July and August and early September. A lot of them, uh, you know, Sinn Féin are holding off until next month. So it's going to be a very short, mm. sharp campaign. And I suppose that gives Sean Gallagher a, a chance because the only the only declared candidate out there at the moment is, is Michael D. Higgins himself. Yeah, and uh, would you be putting any money on a possible candidate for Sinn Féin? Um, I, I, I think the, 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 the likelihood, is it all depends on the identity of the candidate, mm. but I think Sinn Féin are in a win-win situation because they are going to get a lot of exposure for their, their candidate. It will allow them to talk about a united Ireland and other uh, policies dear to their heart. And Fianna Fáil have mm. made it clear they're not running a candidate. The prospect of Eamon O'Keeve coming in seems to have receded uh, fairly sharply. So Sinn Féin will have that space. You know, Fianna Fáil won't be there. Fine Gael won't be there. So it will give them a lot of exposure and airtime. Maybe some mm. negative publicity if past atrocities and so on are brought up but I think it's still a, a big opportunity for the party especially for Mary Lou MacDonald as a, a relatively new leader OK, we'll leave it there for the moment Michael, good to talk to you as always and thanks for joining us uh, this morning Michael Brennan, political editor with the Sunday Business Post Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM In just under a decade 14% of a workers' pay will go into a scheme for their retirement in four years from now that's in 2020 22 workers will be automatically enrolled into this mandatory pension scheme and 1% of earnings will be deducted. That will be matched by a similar amount from uh, their employer over the course of six years. That will increase to 6% and 6% from the employer. And on top of uh, that, uh, the state will allocate uh, one euro for every three euro that is saved, which will bring you to the total of 14%. Uh, Peter Kavanagh, Head of Communications and Public Affairs with Active Retirement Ireland is on the line. Peter, uh, on the face of things, uh, this seems like a fairly prudent approach. Indeed, uh, the type of approach that is followed in a lot of countries. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is something that was brought in recently in the UK. Uh, it's very, very successful in New Zealand. And there's a similar, although a little bit more hardline, it's not a, It's not an opt-out scheme. It's a, it's a mandatory scheme in Australia because we just have a staggering amount of people who are not providing for their own retirement. And, you know, it can be quite difficult to get out there and get into the private pension market and it can seem quite expensive. So a government-sponsored scheme where your employer is going to have to top up your contribution is exactly what we've been calling for for a long time and when I say a long time it was Minister Seamus Brennan who first flagged this 13 years ago and it'll be another nine years before it comes uh, into uh, into existence for workers so you know that's that's 22 years that's almost half a working life that uh, it's sort of been left there on the table for development so it's been a long time coming so we'd welcome any step in this direction I think you know when you say 14% of a worker's pay um, it kind of scares people and I don't want them touching my pay but realistically you've, 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 you've drawn it out perfectly there Michael in your summary uh, beforehand it's going to be 6% of a worker's pay coming from the worker's pay packet and it's going to be coming out of gross pay before tax so it's a very very realistic amount for people to be putting away it should enable people to save for retirement without impacting their immediate quality of life which Okay is but because it's matched by the employer's contribution uh, there is the risk uh, that employers will pay less because they'll be taking that into account, isn't there? I, listen, I think that this is something that is usually thrown out by business interests, all right. And certainly if you had somebody coming from, you know, representing small and medium enterprises, they would certainly say that. But you've got to bear in mind there's a relatively high uh, floor to this. You know, the, people will not be uh, enrolled in this scheme if they're earning less than €20,000 per year. So that takes an awful lot of SMEs out of it. For example, um, shops and small businesses with part-time employees or half-time employees, they won't be required to, to be topping it up. So, you know, realistically, employers do need to contribute to their um, to their uh, uh, their employees' future welfare as retirees, and, and employers' PRSI simply isn't going to foot the bill as mm. this population gets older. So, But they're not a charity, and I mean, if uh, they don't reduce wages to cover the cost, well then, we're going to pay for it in uh, the produce that we buy. You know, you don't get a free lunch for nothing. No, absolutely, and there is a cost to this, and this is mm. something we have to acknowledge as a society, that there is a cost to it. Uh, and, you know, some of the cost is going to be borne by employers, um, some of the cost is going to be borne by employees. To be honest with you, we were hoping that the government's contribution would be significantly higher than the, the 2% it's going to add up to, or one euro in every three, as, as, as you pointed out in the summary. Um, the, the one euro for every three, I should say, sorry, because the equivalent in the UK was one euro in every three. Their marketing scheme was, you put in a pound, your boss puts in a pound, and the government will put in a pound. And that lowered the contribution that employers and employees had to put in. And that was that was the recommendation we had for government. Now, this is still open for submission. So, so what's, of, what, you're, what, you're, what you're quoting, the summary that you gave is just what's known as a, as a, a straw man uh, uh, consultation document. So it's, it's this one idea that they put forward, and we'll talk about it for a couple of months, and by November, they'll have an idea of what pensioners want, what future pensioners want, what employers groups want, because they're obviously a very powerful lobby group, and then groups like ourselves. So we'll all get the opportunity to, to say what shape we want to have it. That's just one of many possible proposals. So instead of my one euro, my employer's one euro, and the state's one euro being put away for my pension, 
which is the case in the UK. Here we're talking about my 150, my employer's 150, and the state's one euro. That's exactly it, yeah. That, 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 that's exactly how it is. The state's uh, contribution to this is, is slightly less. Now, the state would argue that the state pension is higher than it is in the UK. So you're going to, you know, if you retire after a full working life, you're going to get your 240 euros or whatever the equivalent well, I won't need way it. down the road. I won't need it. <laughs> because I've got this other pension. Uh, well, I think the problem and, is and, that you will need it. Like, this other well, pension is only going to top up the state pension. Well, this is what I think people are going to be concerned about, uh, that if I have this mandatory pension that I'm paying into, they can afford to reduce the state pension because my need won't be as great. I don't think I don't think that's the case, and I don't think any government is ever going to get away with trying to reduce the state pension. Um, for a start, we're looking way down the track. If this mm. comes in in nine years' time, yep. it's for people who are going to be retiring in 49 years' time. But there's many ways ways of skinning a cat and you can reduce a pension without cutting it uh, you can reduce a pension by not increasing it over a period of time yeah well if you just have a look at what this government has done with no mandatory uh, auto enrollment pension scheme to back it up this government over the last couple of years has been sort of uh, has been cutting all the fringe benefits away they've taken about 13 euros a week out of uh, pensioners pay packets when when you look at all the additional benefits like the bereavement grant having gone the telephone allowance mm. the winter fuel allowance all of the other ancillary benefits benefits and then the increase in prescription charges and the like so you know we've seen pensioners pockets hurt in a roundabout way there's no doubt so there's no doubt that advocacy groups like our own will be keeping a close eye on this over the coming again and again long long period of time five decades but the, the the sheer numbers won't lie the state pension isn't going to be enough going into the future the cost of living is getting so high that the state pension is not going to be enough and people have to contribute to their own retirement and we're a very 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 bad country at that you know 60 percent of irish workers don't have a private pension. Uh, our public sector is very, very good. If you get a public sector job, you'll have a pension, you'll be able to retire on it. Mm. That's great. But if you're in the private sector, most workers in the private sector don't have a pension. So this is something that we need to address. Yeah, and this would apply to almost 900, uh, around 850,000 workers who don't uh, at the moment. Uh, and uh, if you are paying into a pension scheme, this wouldn't apply to you. That's it. If you're yeah. already paying into a pension scheme, it won't apply to you. If you're earning less than 20,000, it won't apply to you. If you don't fall into the age criteria that they're going to bring in, because this is going to be for young workers paying towards their future. If you're over 40 or 45 or whatever age they will set, you won't be auto-enrolled either. So this is going to affect less than a million workers, but it's going to be a huge step to try and sort of create a fairer future for them as they grow older. And we welcome the fact that for once, after years and years of groups like our own and Age Action and Alone and Age and Opportunity and Third Age Ireland saying that the government needs to plan for the future, they're finally looking a generation or two down the road and that's what's important here. And it's from 23 upwards, isn't it? Uh, from 23 upwards yeah. is the plan, absolutely, yeah. which means that when you're just starting off in employment, you won't be required to give a portion of your salary mm. to, to your pension and then, of course, there'll be a maximum age cap as well uh, because you know when mm. they bring this in, somebody who's already close to retirement is not going to benefit from paying into it for five or ten years. It really is something that you've got to pay into throughout your entire work. Okay, life. but 23 is still very young. I mean, uh, 27 or 30 you could move off uh, to England or Canada or whatever and never come back. 
you, you might do, but at the end of the day, you pay PRSI anyway. Like, uh, this is going to benefit the, the majority of people at that age group. So if people do flit off to a different country and never, ever come back, well, I mean, all of your employees' PRSI is gone. All of your tax is gone. It's just, it's just part of the terms and conditions of working. We just want to get it embedded into society that providing for your pension into the future and providing for this pension scheme, because it is a form of social insurance, this general pension scheme, even though it's going to be administered by plenty of different providers, uh, it is something that we want to do. We want to show this solidarity and prepare our generation for, you know, for the future. If you flit off, certainly. But I don't think 23 is, is, is very young. People aren't really starting their careers at 23 or younger anymore. A lot of people are, since free fees in university in 1997, people are starting their careers much later. And, you know, career has a different look to it as well. People don't go into one job at 19 and stay there until they're 65 and retire anymore. That's just not how it's done. And that's why pension provision is, is quite poor in Ireland. So, you know, this is a very, very welcome step for young people to sort of get onto that pensions ladder and start contributing to their own retirement early. And certainly there will be individuals who won't benefit from it because they'll head off and they'll retire in a different country and they'll make a life for themselves elsewhere. But just like PAYE mm. and just like PRSI, it, this just has to become something that you pay into when you're working. But should there not be a, a, an option? I mean, should you not be able to opt out? Is one thing. Oh, you be, will be able to opt oh, out. Oh, but not for seven or eight months, apparently. No, not, not for seven or eight months, but you will be able to opt out. But I think seven or eight months of paying into this will get you an idea of what it's like. People will, of course, have the opportunity to opt out. And as you mentioned just a few moments ago, Michael, when people are already providing for their own retirement, if they have a PRSA, a, a personal retirement, mm. uh, retirement savings account uh, or, or a third pillar pension as it's known they won't be opted into this scheme either so listen there'll be plenty of get out clauses but at the end of the day auto enrolment is what works it's been tremendously successful in the UK the opt outs have been very very low we're starting to see them rise as the contribution rises but that's just to be expected if it was an opt in scheme and we've been saying this for a long long time mm. if this were to be an opt in scheme it would be an utter disaster and it just wouldn't work because people don't like parting with money. Whereas if it comes at source before it's taxed, you realise oh, you know what, I can actually save for my retirement and it doesn't cost me an arm and a leg. Okay, thank you indeed for joining us. As always Peter Kavanagh, Head of Communications and Public Affairs with Active Retirement Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. The doll should be recalled uh, to deal uh, with uh, the sale of distressed mortgages to vulture funds, uh, according uh, to John McGuinness, who's uh, a Fianna Fáil TD and chair of uh, the Oireachtas Finance Committee and on the line with us. Good morning to you. Uh, You want uh, your bill on affordable housing and fair mortgages uh, to be debated. Uh, It's only a couple of weeks before the doll resumes. Uh, what's the rush, I suppose? Uh, well, the rush is, Michael, that PTSB and Ulster Bank have sold almost 16,000 uh, mortgages. Uh, and there's a significant number of other mortgages that have already been sold, with the AIB and Bank of Ireland now lining up to uh, bring their bad debt down to 5% of their loan book. Uh, as these mortgages are sold, it causes huge uh, conflict and anxiety for families and the vulture funds who normally purchase these loans uh, are unforgiving in, and relentless uh, in their attack on families to, uh, re- to get them into a full repayment uh, position, which is often not possible uh, for those families. Right, uh, but what support is there for the measures that you're proposing? Uh, well, the government didn't uh, oppose the bill, so it's now a second stage. And what I want to happen is 
that the doll should be recalled in the first week of September, uh, that that bill and any other measure that can be taken by the Parliament uh, to relieve the issues faced by these families, that we should we should decide on that and we should prevent the banks from selling those mortgages, keep people in their homes uh, and allow them then to be treated on a sustainable basis by way of pushing the mortgage out or by way of mortgage to rent. It's really that simple, but the government have to show uh, political leadership in this because they have uh, lacked in that area for uh, a long period of time and the vultures are now taking hold of the marketplace and we have to defend uh, the people that we represent. But there are already such measures in in place. Uh, What's the difference? Is this... That's the problem, Michael. There isn't. Uh, <clears throat> the only measures in place at the moment are, for example, the, the mortgage to rent. Mm. Uh, the banks have certainly assisted people to go on a sustainable uh, uh, payment system. But even those loans are being sold. So what we need to do, uh, what the government needs to do is introduce uh, a system whereby before the mortgages are sold or put on the market, that a voluntary housing uh, authority, such as suggested in my bill, would take those loans and work them out with each individual uh, case. That's what needs to be done, rather than this fire sale that's going on uh, at, at the moment. And as I said, it's not just selling loans, it's selling the homes of people and it's selling families and putting them into destitution for years to come. And are some of these people, some of these families, in fact, chancers, as uh, we've uh, been hearing claims of, or uh, prioritising themselves above others, as the case may be on the housing waiting list? You'll certainly find that there are chancers in the, in, in the lot. That's only uh, natural that you would find that. But the fast vast bulk of people that I have been dealing with, and indeed that David Hall has been dealing with, uh, are people that want to pay their way. They've had difficulty in their lives in terms of their finances, uh, but they're not running away from their responsibility. We saved the banks. We pumped in 64 billion euros of taxpayers' money into those banks. Surely we should have some regard for the people that we represent to give them a life beyond where they are now. And remember, mm. as all of this happens, it's damaging to Irish society. But does it's, that include the, the, But does that include the people who have no regard for the rest of us who have been putting that money into the banks, the people who haven't paid anything for three, four, five, six, seven years? No, it's obvious that those that haven't paid or those that won't pay have to be dealt with through the courts uh, and through the normal process. But for the people that do want to pay, for the people that were given, if they were given a chance, they're the ones that we need to look after. Because the remember this, the, the banks are selling every single loan, even loans whereby new agreements were reached in terms of their repayments. They're even being sold. And, and banks are being pressurised by the European Central Bank, who show no regard for individuals or families. Uh, and in these loans too, there are small businesses caught up in them. So you're, you're affecting the whole fabric of society. And it is unfair and it is wrong. And it needs political leadership and it needs a clear indication uh, from the doll to the banks that they will be held accountable. The vulture funds, Michael, would not even appear before the Oireachtas Finance Committee. They refused to do so. The agents of the vulture funds refused. 
How can you have transparency and accountability for Irish people, for banks and so on, if these very people do not appear before committees? But I, so I gather, fighting, I gather that you're frustrated uh, that your arguments are, are falling on, on deaf ears and that you're not getting the support of your party on this. And I read in the Irish Times uh, that you've written to all of uh, the Fianna Fáil councillors in the country, all 255 of them, to tell them that you've no support uh, from the Oireachtas members. Yes, I have. And I, I, I'm trying to solicit their support uh, in terms of having the party uh, recall, uh, call for the, the um, meet, a meeting of the Dáil to discuss this. Uh, and it's not unusual that you would have to ca- campaign in such a fashion uh, to impress on people the need for the type of reform and change that I am suggesting. Uh, and and it, it, it's also true to say that as these vulture funds uh, buy these loans, their profits and their ownership of the loans, it goes outside the country. It's depriving society of everything that is important. Family, community, a right to live in a reasonable way, pay your money, pay your loans and so on. So, yes, I have appealed to councillors, TDs and senators and I'm appealing to everyone in a cross-party fashion because this bill wasn't opposed by the government. It's at second stage and that bill and any other suggestion should be debated and we should have a resolution to this to protect people in their homes. Does it amount to interfering with how the banks do their business and what impact would that have on the bank's ability to lend and what impact would it have on the value of the banks themselves? Uh, If the bill is passed and the appropriate agency is set up, well then the money that the bank would get from that agency would be of the same value as the money from the vulture fund. All you're doing is having a, a, a voluntary uh, ethical fund put in place rather than the vulture funds that are taking benefit of the sale of these loans from banks. Well, you're taking away the open market, are you not? No, you're not, because the banks are being paid exactly what they would have been paid by the vulture funds. Uh, therefore, they're getting the same money. They're writing down the balance. And why is it that they can write down the balance for vulture funds and they're not getting the opportunity, I suppose, to engage with an organisation set up through the Oireachtas that would give the power to buy those loans and to keep people in their homes and to keep the profits in this country. Okay, but it's just offering a different way of doing business and it's a, a reform that's absolutely necessary for the thousands of people that are now being threatened buy vulture funds and may possibly lose their homes. Okay, well it's certainly an issue, as you say, for thousands of uh, people in that situation uh, this morning. I'm sure we'll hear about it when the doll resumes. Uh, I'm not sure if that will be at uh, an earlier stage than is already scheduled, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning to make those arguments. Fianna Fáil TD, John McGuinness is Chair of the Finance Committee and brings our programme to its conclusion today. Before we go, thanks to Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Marine the control chair. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.